0: To another episode of Free Lunch by the Peak, the podcast where we talk to people way smarter than us about the most important topics in Canadian business, economics, and policy. I'm your co-host Taylor Scotland,
1: and I'm Sarah Britnica
0: So, Sarah, you know one thing that's always uh, appealed to me is this idea of a basic income, and you, and probably a lot of people, <laughs> totally like money money for just existing. That sounds great to me. Um, and I don't mean that to, to diminish it. Truly, it does seem like something that I would be very interested in and, uh, you know, has always seemed like a, an interesting way to address some serious problems that we talk about on the show, like, you know, poverty and issues like that. Uh, and then you know, I read this piece in the Globe and Mail last week or the week before that, which was throwing some cold water on that concept.
1: I, I mean, me like like everyone else loves free money. Although I think we'll we'll learn that UBI or universal basic income is not exactly that. I know that it's been around as an idea for decades and decades, and that there's been a lot of interesting pilots around the world that have tested the effects of how the deployment of a universal basic income would change things for specific target groups and to no surprise the results have been overwhelmingly positive because as you mentioned i mean who wouldn't love to have an extra 500 thousand dollars in their bank account every month
0: yeah and you know these are things that we've written about quite a bit in the newsletter some of these pilots and the results that have come out of them but i did want to get a alternative perspective on this and dig into you know, some of the the policy details around a basic income. So I invited on the show one of the co-authors of the piece that was in The Globe and the co-author of a recent book about basic income. Lindsay Tedds is joining us today. She's an associate professor in the economics department and the University of Calgary and recently co-authored the book Basic Income and a Just Society Policy Choices for Canada's Social Safety Net. Lindsay, thanks for coming on the show.
2: Oh, well, thank you so much for having me. Really appreciate it.
0: Okay, so I think let's start at a very high level here. Uh, for those of us who, who don't quite know the details about basic income, can you explain what it is and how it would work in practice?
2: Well, that's a great question because it's not just one thing. It, we, okay. we sort of conceptualize it as a class of cash transfers. So the idea behind it is that you want to get money into the hands of people, uh, you want to do it in a less stigmatizing way. Um, but other than that, you know, the, there's a variety of different variants to it. One would be what is called a universal benefit. Everybody gets the same amount. Uh, and then one would assume it gets taxed back depending on how much other income you have. Or it can be means tested at the start so that you never have to worry about paying um, it back. And that sort of idea is how the model we use for most of our refundable tax credits, like the Canada Child Benefit and the GST HST credit. But as soon as you start bringing in these um, ways of testing, you're bringing back in complexity and stigma. So that's why we see it as a class of cash transfers, because it has all of those same features that we have to confront when we're designing anything that gives money to people.
0: Okay, so if I was a, a recipient of basic income, let's say we were using the universal model, just for simplicity's sake, what would my experience be like? Would I just, I would receive a check on like a monthly or annual basis and and that's it? Just walk through the mechanics of it a little yeah,
2: bit. Yeah, well, if, again, you can design this in any particular way. Um, it's mostly envisioned, again, here in Canada because the system we already have as, you know, a monthly payment. So if it was a, this universal basic income, let's say everybody gets $500 a month, uh, they can then do whatever they want with it, but it would be taxed back come tax time. So you'd have to factor in your tax liability owing dependent on what your other sources of income would be. So in that way, it sounds simple, right? Give everybody the same amount of money But for people to calculate their tax liability, um, that's really hard to do. And so it actually adds in complexity when we start thinking about paying for it through this tax back mechanism.
1: This is the first time that I've heard about universal basic income as something that you would have to pay back. Maybe I naively, like I hope some listeners maybe also thought this, but I thought it was like a monthly cash transfer, no strings attached. You get to get the keep the full amount outright, but it's not that. And so I wonder if the way that this would be rolled out is that at different levels of the income kind of earnings bracket, you would have to give back a portion. Why are we not just having conversations about developing benefits to help people kind of at the lower end of the income spectrum. So
2: that's the conversation that certainly um, myself and the co-authors of this book that was published by our IRPP. When we delve into the real implementation details of basic income, because that's what I am, I'm a policymaker, I have to design it and implement it. And it gets complex really fast, right? It seems very, very simple on the surface. But if you give everybody $500, for example, every month, Um, it's gonna cost tens of billions of dollars. Where are we gonna get that from, right? We are already running a fairly sizable deficit at the federal level. Um, Most provinces also have very, very large deficits. So we have to think about funding it and funding it is going to mean some form of changes to our tax system that would then either increase your rates on other income or it would uh, claw it back specifically when you filed your taxes dependent on your income. That's what we did with the universal child benefit. If you remember that one that Harper um, implemented at the UCCB was exactly like that. We gave everybody um, what was it like a hundred dollars a month and come tax time we taxed it all back.
0: So in addition to the, the cost and the complexity that that adds around taxes, Maybe just walk us through your argument about basic income. And, you know, my understanding of it is that you're saying that we have better ways of, of solving these problems. Um, why is that? And, you know, what are some of those alternatives and why are they better?
2: So, I mean, I think it's important that no matter what, we have to keep the budget constraint in mind. Right. I mean, if we had unlimited funds, right, we could do just about everything. Um, including a basic income and everything else. But the reality is we have a budget constraint and there's no real easy way of, you know, one simple thing that will allow us to afford it. I, you can't tax the wealthy to pay for a basic income. It would lead to about $100 a month of a basic income, which then moves away from this poverty perspective, right? So when we are, are, when I think about these things, this is what I have to do. I have to think about the budget constraint. I also think about diversity of people. People need different things at different times of their lives. Sometimes it's income, but sometimes it's essential services. Right. So health care, we can't dismantle essential public services in order to pay for it. And that includes, you know, legal services, affordable housing, um, health care, K through 12 education, post-secondary education. There are all of these things, right, that lead to a very um, functional society. And if we try to replace all of these things with just one Program, a basic income, there are going to be lots of people who are left worse off because they value some of these other things more at the time. Think about if you have young kids, how much you value $10 a day daycare right now, which I'm totally envious, didn't get to ride that ride. Um, but that you could think about how you need different things at different times. And so it's much better to think about how to target public policy for these different periods of time so that somebody can go out and put together the bundle of goods services and income that best suits what they are trying to achieve in their life
1: so if a monthly transfer payment isn't about giving everyone that extra, like that extra boost to just help like live their best lives say and it's really just about lifting people out of poverty I'm interested to know what have all these pilots been focusing on? I think there's been countless of UBI kind of pilots around the world. And I'm wondering, do most of them have the goal of solving that problem? I've seen ones that are deployed specifically to like new mothers. There's one in New York recently, but like what have the pilots been testing specifically? They're all
2: testing different things, (laughs) but they're all using the phrase basic income, which makes it very complex, Right. So like the big one in Finland, which is called the basic income experiment, um, was actually just social assistance reform. All they did was uh, they had they took their income assistance, social assistance, welfare system, whatever word. Um, that resonates with you, they, they took that and just gave people a little bit more money and uh, leaned a bit away from work requirements. Not exactly a basic income, um, though the one for mothers in New York, I was just reading about that last week, been shown to be very good because when you give, when people have kids, <laughs> kids uh, affect your ability to pay for just about everything. Um, and so providing transfers to young parents is actually a really, really good thing. And we do that in Canada, right? We have the Canada Child Benefit. Um, The United States though, doesn't have our same programs. So when they're looking at experimenting with things, they're experimenting in a completely different environment than what we already have here. And that's another thing that has to be uh, considered, right? I mean, they tried to implement their version of the Canada Child Benefit. It lasted six months before it was dismantled by the Republicans. So you can see why they might want to test that because they're trying to get more movement behind um, that particular piece of policy. But is it a basic income? I don't know. I know it's a cash transfer. It goes to people with conditions. Um, it is means tested. We have a lot of these things. How is it different from a refundable tax credit? You know, This is where I go off as an economist and why people hate me.
0: It seems like there's almost a definitional problem here because we read yeah. so many headlines about all these different programs that co- claim to be basic, or people claim them as basic income programs. And then, you know, as you say, you get into it and it's like, well, this is not really that different from what a we already do. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But th- there, there is this sort of maximalist basic income concept, right, which I don't, you'll see argued for sometimes, which is, you know, we're going to give everyone enough unconditionally to live off of uh, you know, sort of in a, in a no strings attached way, uh, which to me as a fundamentally lazy person sounds fantastic. Uh, but you're saying that that's financially, is that just off the table in this country? Like economically, financially, that's not a viable option.
2: Anything of substance is, is you, you can't deliver it universally without there being a real tangible budget constraint. It's, it's, that's just the reality of the math. Um, that's behind it. There, There's other things that we should also be concerned about because, okay, so if you you get everybody, I get $1,000, you get $1,000. I already own my home. I already have a big retirement fund. You give me $1,000. Are you not just creating wealth inequity? And so are you solving more problems than you're creating? Because wealth inequity in this country is a significant concern. And one of the things, certainly as some of these kids, um, and I'm worried about them being able to afford a, you know, a house in 10 years, do you want to then have me have $12,000 a year that I don't need that I put towards buying him a house uh, when he's like 21? I would never do that, by the way. But these are the things that we have to think about if we're going on that universal type model. Which sounds simple, but then it creates complexities. The the other question you have to ask, what are you going to dismantle? So you have people here in Alberta that are on our AISH uh, program. These are people with disabilities. Uh, They get $1,600 a month. Do you dismantle that to then give everybody $1,000 a month? I have significant concerns with that. Because people with disabilities have less ability to supplement their income uh, and right. face massive barriers to work. So, you know, uh, most of the models that we look at actually don't make everyone better off and they don't make everyone better off because of what we have to dis- to dismantle in order to solve the budget constraint problem.
1: And when you get mm. to the idea of having to dismantle one thing to contribute to a basic income Is that just so that all the extra money doesn't end up eroding purchasing power through something like heightening inflation? Or is that not linked?
2: Well, I mean, everything is linked. never as as serious as, you know, what certain people in Ottawa uh, are going off about. But these are things we have to we absolutely have to think about this from a perspective of a sizable basic income program at the federal level could cost between 200 and 600 billion dollars, depending on the features of it. That is not a small amount, right? We, we collect 300 billion in taxes. Um, uh, or uh, Sorry, wow. the federal government has 300 billion in revenues, right? So we, when you really sort of think about how complex that this is, there is no easy way to pay for it. As people say, tax the rich. Okay, we do. Uh, There's not a lot of rich people in Canada. Canada is not the United States. You know, the number of uber wealthy we all can name. It's a 100 of them. So we can tax them for sure. We're going to get maybe five billion dollars. We could tax uh, principal residents on sale. Again, that would be another five billion dollars. So you can see that, yes, we could do these things. Absolutely. I'm not saying that we can't. But in terms of those being the pillars to pay for these programs, we're in a completely different stratosphere of the kinds of tools we would need to be able to fund this, which is why there's often has to be a talk about what would we give up in terms of publicly provided goods and services to be able to pay
1: for it. If that's the case, I'm wondering about the COVID relief Programs like the the payment supports that were um, being given out, I think the most popular one was CERB. Why did that spark so much interest in revisiting the conversation around universal basic income?
2: Um, so I, I don't know because CERB is not a basic income. So CERB was brought in because the employment insurance system um, imploded when, you know, we had a million people claim in one week over a period of time when we would normally see maybe 50,000 claims, right? So CERB was just a um, stopgap measure that took the place of employment insurance. Uh, it You had to have had work force attachment. You had to have had um, a certain amount of income. You could only earn some income while you were collecting it. You could only collect it for, it was initially 24 weeks, and then I, I think it went to 28. I don't know. It changed so many times it was hard to keep keep up with. So CERB wasn't a basic income, but people saw it as, well, when you have, you know, when you have this big disruption and we saw the benefits of supporting people, why not just have that universally? But again, we actually have a lot of programs that you can put together that are different ac- according to your, your point of life. Um, and in the end, a lot of those things make more sense when you start thinking about heterogeneity of individuals, not just across a point in time, but as we live our lives across time.
0: I think that gets at something that uh, a lot of people feel, which is a frustration with the existing welfare state and the programs, the assistance programs that are there, Um because it kind of seems like maybe they've over-indexed to targeting very specific niche needs. Uh, and, you know, that sort of leaves you to cobble together a bunch of different benefits and programs to try and uh, and make ends meet. And it kind of ends up feeling a little bit dysfunctional.
2: Yes,
0: um, Yes. <laughs> yeah, and, you know, basic income seems like a clean solution to that, right? Okay, well, we'll just sort of sweep all that away. It'll be one thing, easy, done. Uh, Maybe you can talk a little bit about what the gaps are in the current system, what the problems are, the dysfunctions and where we should spend our time thinking about how to fix those.
2: So, first of all, what I'll say is the existing system exists for a reason, not very good reasons, but it exists for a reason. I'm trying to understand why people would think it would be so easily easy to delete all of those programs and start with a basic income because there's a reason why those programs exist. And again, a lot of this is sort of this idea that people are lazy and they need incentives to work. None of that is really true. Um, So I just wanna make sure that people understand I'm not somebody who thinks that. Um, I I, I think it is very important that we get supports to people. But the system is a mix mash of municipal, provincial, federal. They don't talk to each other. And we seem to have this um, bizarre fear of a digital ID. A digital ID that we could have with an integrated federal provincial municipal system would mean we could be like Estonia with their ex-road system. we go in and apply for one program and we are auto-assessed for them all. And then it pools it together. So it puts the obligation on the state to ensure that you get the programs that you qualify for rather than on the individual. I do fundamentally disagree that an individual has to learn about, we have more than 200 programs in Canada and that's just at the federal and provincial level, let alone the the nonprofit sector and what have you. To ask a person to uh, navigate these is, it's just bizarre to me and you know, you can think about it. We, we have this great campaign right now out talking about um, those who are fleeing domestic violence. 92% of them are going to have a traumatic brain injury. And that traumatic brain injury is going to impede their ability to interact with the system. What if it was just all automatic? I mean, that's the dream. The girl can dream and we can have... We can have these conversations and there are jurisdictions that are doing better than others. BC is doing uh, well, but Quebec is the leader, as always, (laughs) when it comes to social programs and delivery of it. Quebec is doing really well. But the things we have to dismantle from our system or at least reduce really has to do with challenging our assumptions um, and and understanding the lives of people uh, who live in low income one of the things that I find that people are quite surprised to learn about is that our provincial income assistance programs are predominantly populated with people with either disabilities or multiple barriers to work. Uh, And um, I mean, that can be as much as 75 to 85 percent of income assistance recipients are actually facing massive barriers, Um, not just disabilities, but a combination of, say, homelessness and addictions or homelessness and having children. These are all things that affect our ability to um, navigate uh, the employment system, which has huge barriers to people. So we need to really, really think about these things. But Again, it's 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 three levels of government fr- plus the nonprofit sector plus you got some private charities in there. Um, it's a lot to sort of tackle, uh, but it is worth tackling. But we need a culture and a mind shift in order to be able to do that.
0: So, what has Quebec done better that's made it work better there?
2: Quebec, uh, they prioritized uh, addressing poverty, um, and this was. Uh, right around the same time as they were bringing in universal child care. Um, so Quebec had a very substantial uh, poverty problem. Um, it, it had low income. It had low labor force participation rates, all of these things. And so it brought in a series over time of programs and policies that to support people. Uh, their, I can't remember how much their child care. It started at $5 a day, then went to 7 that actually massively changed the labor force participation of women and improved their um, their their lives a great deal um, because of that. They also reformed their income assistance. They have a, uh, when it comes to like rental housing, they have a provincial database uh, and they have lots of um, controls over how you can price rental properties, which I think we can while I'm, the economist in me always gets worried about that, I'm seeing people talk about $800 a month rent increases right now um, and again the, the putting all of these things together is what leads to the sort of society that you're trying to achieve um, and you know Quebec is a big one on solidarity um, helping each other out. Um, we can talk about some of their other issues, but when it comes to social programming, um, they are the leaders in Canada.
1: We've been talking a little bit about um, being smart with allocating the costs of all these programs. How has Quebec dealt with all of these benefits, I guess, financially? Like, has it, like, have they been financially responsible? What does their balance sheet look like? <laughs>
2: um, well, their balance sheet looks way better than Ontario. I'll, I'll does do it? That. Okay, oh, yeah, Way better. <laughs> um, they, uh, I don't know if Quebec is the highest personal income tax rates, but if not, it's very, very close, right? They've always had a very, very progressive system and um, top marginal tax rates in the 60 some odd percents, right? Um, they also uh, opted out of the tax collection agreements, um, and so they have control over their own personal income tax system. So they can do things that other provinces can't do because we've decided harmonization, which is one thing I actually do agree with. Harmonization is important. Um, they, they confronted um, like offshore beneficial trusts long before, I mean, Canada's just getting started, cracking down on offshore beneficial trusts. Um, I, everybody wants to say it's equalization. Um, yes, they do get a, a, a good lump of money from equalization, but they've also fully used their tax system um, as well to supplement their, their revenues um they also have a lot of um uh, uh inexpensive electricity that's coming online uh and that is also um helping them uh in terms of you know how that all works so it's a combination of measures there's no one thing um that they were able to do but they they've all they made a decision um uh, very very early on to address this problem and to address it through a broad suite of measures
0: this might be a little bit too philosophical a question, but I do think it's important to try to understand what a well-functioning welfare state would actually look like. Like, what, what are you getting as a citizen of a country when you have a welfare state that works well and does do those things that you're talking about, addressing needs in different stages of life and when you have different demands, I guess?
2: I mean, uh, what of the... One of the things that we want to think about is, do we want this a system where the spoils go to the few and then we use the system to redistribute it? Or do we care more about inequality in the first place and try to address those barriers so that we don't have to redistribute as much? And so when we look at the Nordic countries, particularly, most of their focus is actually on what we call pre-distribution, trying to address these problems at the start. And they do, Mm. believe it or not, they do less redistribution than the United States. So that when you think about being able to dismantle barriers, address market failures, make sure that there isn't market power of, say, you know NHL billionaires who you know are holding taxpayers to building their new event center. Um, you know the, when we we address things from the first principles, we get a much healthier outcome. There's still room for redistribution, but it's not the preference because redistribution means you're not able to fully take into it, take advantage of the the system that is around us, and that's we you know we want to get rid of. Uh, discrimination, employment barriers, all of these sorts of things, because this is what impedes the ability to have uh, a flatter distribution of income and wealth in the first place.
1: I guess a follow up on the system that the Nordic countries use, because, you know, we've talked about how there's only so many billionaires in Canada to tax to be able to pay for, you know, all these nice benefits. But I'd imagine in the Nordic countries, that number is even lower. Like it's not a, like a billionaire entrepreneurial society. Like you're dealing with it's incomes that United I guess States. are much closer. Yes. It's not <laughs> the United States. So how do they come up with the money, right? When the people sitting at the top of the, in- like at the very top of the highest income brackets are, you know, closer or more in line with the people, let's say, at the middle and, and even the bottom? I mean, it, 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 it's all about choices and they've made different
2: choices in terms of the allocation of their resources than um, we have. Right. And so, you know, they and their taxes are higher. Uh, and they have a, f- a few more tools but in terms of the n- number of you know millionaires and billionaires yeah I mean they're concentrated in the United States and in the UK none, none of the rest of us really have a lot um, of, of these individuals there are some but again it's never a, a big number it, you again there is um, much more in the Nordic countries they're much more homogeneous they have a much um, more shared, value system so it's actually easier to put in place the goods and services and pay for them in a way that everybody kind of agrees with when you get to canada right i mean we have this social democratic um history to us we have a good welfare state but we're also you know like the united states um, and we're always competing with them on different things so we're kind of in kind of pulled between two Polls when it comes to our democratic state, um, and, and and that is a function of um, both heterogeneity, a little bit of a you know a, 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 of a complex being so close to the United States, um, as well as who 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 get whose voices get heard in terms of the uh, uh, development of public policy. Right. And so you can see as, you know, uh, parties change, particularly at the federal level, how different voices and values get to influence public policy, which pulls us back and forth between uh, more inequality and less inequality.
0: I'm curious what you've seen in some of the, the research and the modeling and tests that people have done around basic income with regards to entrepreneurship. Because you see, like I've read arguments from both sides of this. People say, oh, you get people money and they're not gonna you know, start businesses or anything like that. And then people say, well, actually, if people have a better safety net, they're more likely to take these risks. Have you seen any evidence one way or another around that question?
2: Uh, yeah, we, we actually um, uh, did a study on it and there's a chapter in our book on this specific issue. And I just wanna say it's complicated one of the reasons why the tech community has said a basic income supports entrepreneurship is because they see how many of the entre- entrepreneurs come out of families that have the level of support underlying those individuals, right? Um, you know, when people are working in their garages, they're not their garage, they're the parents' garage, right? <laughs> right? Sure. Yeah. Things like that, right? So we do know that the more support that you have, the easier it is to take risks. Whether or not a basic income has that really just is kind of dependent on the push and pulls of um, self-employment. And one of the things that we saw was, in fact, uh, some of the biggest drivers in Canada into self-employment are actually not good drivers. They're not good drivers because people are... Um, they come here as immigrants with massive credentials that we refuse to recognize and their only way to work is in uh, through self-employment. They'd rather be an employee, but they're self-employed. Is that an entrepreneur? Um, we also see particularly racialized women um, leave the, the paid workforce because of the discrimination that they face and they set up a business um, a self-employment business in order to be able to do what they want without facing the, um, the, 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 the workplace environment. So it's, it, entrepreneurship is not as simple as having money. It's also about, um, like exposure. What there's been some great studies that show you're more likely to be an entrepreneur if your parents, an entrepreneur, you're more likely to be an entrepreneur if you were mentored in high school by an entrepreneur and things like that. And I, the evidence putting all of that together would say that there are more important drivers to entrepreneurship, which I, to me is a much smaller segment than just business ownership. But real true entrepreneurs require much more nour- nourishment than just having income to support them.
0: Let me ask you about employment insurance, because it it seems like a really good example of one of these areas where the existing welfare state that we have just doesn't seem to be doing the job anymore. So uh, can you talk in a little bit more detail about what the problems with that design of that system are and how did those come about? Has it always been bad like this or was there a time when employment insurance actually worked well, Yeah,
2: it it it's well. It I mean, it dates back to the sixties, right? Completely different economy uh, and workforce uh, in the sixties than it is now. But it also has been dismantled um, over the period of time. We you know we go from a period of time where eighty percent of people who are unemployed qualified for employment insurance now to forty five percent. So th- there's been a dramatic shift in. Um, in the, in, in the labor force, in how work works, um, what are the benefits associated with work because we've seen a dismantling of, of pension plans in the private sector, all of these sorts of things. And the employment insurance system has not kept up with that. The tweaks have always been things along the lines of excluding people from employment insurance uh, or doing expansions to people who we um, were okay with them not working for a short period of time, i.e., parents, right? So there's still that 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 connection to the workplace uh, and an antiquated workplace that exists in the employment insurance system. It's also the whole employment insurance system is written in COBOL, which is a language nobody knows anymore, right? So when it imploded during the pandemic, there was no way to come in and fix it because nobody knows how to code in COBOL.
0: Oh, my God. Well, that seems like a problem that we could fix. <laughs> yes. Good Lord. <laughs> what, what What is the way to fix that? Because, you know, it, it is, yeah, as you say, it's so attached to these older forms of employment, which still exist in, in some capacity. But so many people, you know, they'll work a little bit here, they'll work a little bit there and sort of cobble together an income like that. How, how do you design an employment? employment insurance system around that reality?
2: Yeah. So, I mean, one of the biggest issues is what we call fissured work, right? You've got multiple um, avenues, whether it's multiple employers or multiple gigs, things like that, and, and you're putting them together, which often means you're locked out of benefits because at any one employer, you're not working enough hours or you're not considered an employee. I think we need to redefine what an employee is. And I think when we see the court cases coming out of the gig economy, you know, you really have to wonder about the tests of an employee, because if you truly understand something like Uber, you actually understand that they are an employee. They're not a self-employed contractor, right? And so these are all, these are all things that have happened around us and that, people in charge uh, in Ottawa typically don't have that same heterogeneity of experience. And so they don't often see things in the same way. And they're also given a manual that was written, right, 40 years ago. And so there's there's it, it really is just about a better understanding of what's going on in the world and what outcome are we trying to achieve. We wanna make sure that people are supported in work that there's some sort of backstop when they lose their job because otherwise we're the United States of America right? Uh, which is not a place I want to live. Uh, so we have to think about these things but it's 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 complex and if there's anything governments are very bad at doing, it's complex stuff. They like tweaks. they can handle tweaks. <laughs> but a dramatic overhaul is hard. I think I think they're trying on employment insurance. Um, it'll be in but they are well behind they've been we've been waiting for employment insurance reform for like eight years now so um, uh, how it'll be reformed when there's just no inkling of how important it is to get that modernized so that we're what we call recession ready we should always be recession ready
1: another reason that basic income has I think dominated the headlines over the last few months is really because of people watching the fast acceleration of ai and thinking of what that could do for unemployment what, what's your view in the role if any at all of basic income as ai just becomes more advanced sophisticated can do stuff that we get paid for day to day
2: humans are resilient we have been talking about the AI apocalypse for 200 years. Um, it, you know whether or not it was the the the, um, yeah, the the motorized engine or things like this. Right, this 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 idea that uh, the robots are going to take our jobs has always um, really sort of been part of uh, an ongoing narrative. The thing to remember is robots take over some jobs, they don't take over other jobs, and we have yet to create a world uh, that exists in Terminator where we don't need human beings to make the robots, program the robots, um, uh, fix the robots, all of this kind of stuff. So they, it, changes the, the, it changes the jobs that are available. There's no evidence it changes the number of jobs available. So th- this is why we do worry about when there's a big um, structural Uh, change in the economy is making sure that we're supporting people who will not be able to get um, retrained uh, to a point where they can become productive again in the existing labor market. For example, we did this with the phase out in coal in Alberta, right? You start phasing out those jobs. What do you do with the 55-year-old worker who's too far away from retirement, 10 years away from retirement, but by the time he's retrained, he's 60. Um, And are there better ways than to support people? Uh, And that's what we did with bridging to retirement, so that people were able to have a retirement plan in place to bridge them over that 10 years, because it was a better thing to do. Now, not everybody needed it. There were people who got retrained um, got jobs in the renewable sector and things like that but you always have to think about those big shocks they're never they're never everybody. there are certain types of people and you have to make sure your programs um, are uh, again heterogeneous enough to ensure that, You know, young workers, we can retrain them and get them back into the labor force uh, and have a different policy and programs, maybe for
0: older workers. That's it for me, Sarah. Any other questions on your end?
1: Uh, The last thing that I want to ask is that, like, as we go through this conversation, it increasingly becomes a conversation just about the efficiency of the tax system And I wonder if there are any kind of concrete changes that you'd like to see. You've mentioned a couple in this conversation, but maybe to summarize just some things that could happen out the gate to make sure that we're solving some of those, or I guess working towards those goals that we've talked about, right? Like supporting people, bringing them out of poverty, helping, you know, create a more robust like EI system, things like that? So, I mean,
2: with the tax system itself, to me, there's two big ones, e-payroll. So as soon as we move to e-payroll, we have real time reporting of income, which again, the employment insurance system imp- just couldn't handle, right? So if we move to e-payroll, we're getting daily reports of your income. So as soon as you have an income shock, we can get benefits to you, right? That's, that's a really important one and that's CRA. The other one is auto filing. Nobody should have to fill out their own tax forms. CRA should do it for you, send it to you, and you can either respond and change things or um, take it as is. And that is actually a system that exists in more than 35 countries around the world. Uh, And it ensures that we don't miss people who don't file their taxes because taxes are complex. Lots of people are dealing with it. I, one year I gave birth on tax day. Uh, and so you have, you have people who are affected, like things can impede your ability to, to, to file your taxes on time that are just not nefarious. Uh, and from, from what we see, there's a, 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 a cadre of low-income individuals between 20 and 30% who are not filing their taxes for very complex reasons. Um, and, and that doesn't need to be. We know who most of them are because they have slips like uh, uh, from a government program or from an employer. So we could auto assess everybody for benefits and deliver them in real time. We could do both of those things within a couple of years. Assuming we don't recreate the Phoenix payroll system. I mean, I do have to admit.
0: I was just thinking about that. (laughs) Oh, my God. Sounds like my taxes are going to get screwed up for the next 10
2: years. (laughs) Then the obligation's on them. You have to ship, ship the obligation.
0: Right. True. Okay. Well, Lindsay, that was great. Thank you so much. That was a fascinating conversation. Appreciate it.
2: Thank you very much for having me.
0: Well, that was a really uh, enlightening conversation. I thought with with Lindsay. Um, you know, the first thing that stuck out to me, which I still am having some trouble pinning down, is like what is this definition of a basic income? It seems like it's way too broad of a category to even talk about in that way. Like when we talk about it, we need to be very specific about what we're actually talking about because there is so many different versions of this thing floating around out there.
1: Okay. Well, yeah, it's definitely not free money and it's definitely not free money for everyone, which I was disappointed to hear. And I know that you probably were too. And I don't know how somewhere along the way I got this idea that it was that. And I seriously hope I'm not the only one, but I guess it's because we've seen these pilots deployed agra- like across such targeted segments that the conversation around like how this income, if it were to be deployed across like a broader population segment, would be taxed back. But like some of the details of how that would even work in theory, if we're just building off of the idea that, okay, this is something that's maybe going to get sent to the entire population of a country, those complications like were things that I was not aware of.
0: Yeah, exactly. It seems to be a lot more complicated than it's sometimes presented to be. And you know, when we see these pilots running, they're often fairly limited in their scope and their scale. And so while, you know, as you said in the intro to this episode, they they do tend to produce uh, positive results and we cover them, maybe there is some reason to believe, like Lindsay said, that if we scaled them up to a sort of nationwide program, something that could actually replace or supplement some of the Uh, social programs that we have now, it just wouldn't be feasible from a financial perspective. You know, I think she put some numbers out there that indicated even for a pretty modest basic income that really wouldn't, you know, eliminate poverty or anything like that, we'd still be looking at something like doubling the amount of revenue that the government has to collect in order to pay for it. So these are, you know, serious, serious numbers that we're talking about. And maybe there are better ways to sort of fill in the gaps in the existing uh, welfare state that we have rather than trying to replace it with an entirely new system.
1: I guess one of the biggest arguments and how I would summarize this conversation is that like, you don't really need universal basic income if you just have a better run tax system that properly supports everyone that needs to be supported.
0: Right. If you have a more functional government that can actually do things that right now <laughs> it struggles to do, then maybe this would not be not be such a, a necessity. But yeah, I mean, that that really is something that we continue to see in these episodes that we do on policy is just that the government is really bad at doing things that it tries to do. And, you know, we t- <laughs> at the end there, we talked about or we touched on the Phoenix payroll system. Like, I think we need to do an episode about that. At some point, to try to understand how these projects just get so mismanaged and go so far off the rails, because it really is a a big problem. Like when we talk about reforming the employment insurance system, which is such a big economic issue—not just a policy issue—it's a—it's a a major part of how our economy works. Uh, You know, I have very little confidence, based on the conversations that we've had so far, that the federal government is even capable of achieving that right now.
1: Oh well, yeah. That they couldn't dole out EI because there was no one in existence. in like the Canadian computer engineering community that could figure out right, how to code. It's all programmed from- in
0: COBOL. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I mean, it, it is interesting though, because when you look at places and you touched on this point, like where these, like where just like the social support systems are so built out, like Norway, you don't even need UBI because everyone yeah. is just like so well taken care of. But one thing that I do want to get your perspective on too, and we didn't really talk about it in the episode, but the concept of a digital ID and the role that that plays in all of this. I also feel like that's another episode, but I want to get your reaction to, to that suggestion first.
0: I mean, I'm fine with it, but again, like, <laughs> I really wonder about whether that's something that the federal government could implement even if it Wanted to, like, even if we were all on board for this and no one was concerned about privacy or any of these other things, which I'm sure people are, uh, could they even do something like that? Like, I'm genuinely curious. I don't know.
1: The first step would be to, like Lindsay said, to get those tax returns automated because, like, I feel like I see this every tax season on social media. It's like, the CRA knows what you owe. Why don't they just tell you? Why do I have to go through So that could be the first step. And then, you know, we can figure out, let's get everyone set up with a MyCRA account where things are done in the reverse way process-wise. The government just tells you what you owe or what they're paying you back. And then maybe we can start talking about a digital ID.
0: The taxes are like, you guess what you owe the government and then they come (laughs) back to you and they say, no, you actually owe this. And now you have to pay us a fine for guessing wrong. It's like, yeah, maybe we should fix that first.
1: It kind of just like that example just captures like how the entire system works and how it's just super counterintuitive in, in some ways. So on a positive note, there's tons of room for improvement is, is what I'm getting out of all totally. of
0: this. <laughs> that's right. Okay. Well, maybe that's a good place to leave it. I think so. All right. Well, this has been another episode of Free Lunch by the Peak. I'm your co-host, Taylor Scullin. You can find me on Twitter at Taylor Scallon.
1: And I'm Sarah Brightnika. You can find me on Twitter at Sarah Brightnika.
0: If you want to listen to older episodes, search and follow Free Lunch by the Peak wherever you get your podcasts. And we'll see you next week.